0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and all week I've been seeing articles about bathing. For those of you who missed it, a number of celebrities weighed in on the subject of bathing this week or lack thereof. As always, the admission that they don't bathe every day was met with the expected gasps and bad jokes until the day was saved by The Rock who assured everyone that he showers no fewer than three times a day, making the rest of us feel inadequate in a new, exciting way. Now, showers were invented in 1767, but they didn't become common in U.S. homes until the 1930s and 40s. Now they're such a normal part of daily life that it's difficult to imagine what people did without them. How bad must people have smelled before bathing? Before deodorant? Now, just because showers weren't common doesn't mean that people didn't bathe. After all, Rome took public baths to a whole new level of extra that most spas can't replicate even today. Public baths have existed throughout the world for centuries, and people have always found ways to freshen up even when full immersion bathing wasn't possible. People like to be clean. They like to smell good, feel good, and look their best. And throughout history, they found all different kinds of ways to do that. Cosmetics have always existed, and even before places like Target and Boots, makeup and bath products were readily available, came in all different kinds of scents, and they sold very well. Beauty trends didn't begin with a flapper. They didn't even begin with a Gibson girl with her bicycle and sky-high hair. Beauty trends have come and gone and come again, so frequently that many have been forgotten unless they were particularly enduring or surprising. Today on Dirty Sexy History, we're going to talk about that. First, we're going to pick it up from last week's episode about Marie Duplessis with a look at how tuberculosis set the beauty standard for the ideal Victorian beauty in Britain, and then we're going to jump to Guild of Age New York City with a lighter segment where we'll read some skincare tips from a real beauty advice column that ran in Harper's Bazaar called The Ugly Girl Papers. Gee, thanks. Let's get started. Picture the ideal 19th century English beauty pale, almost translucent skin, rosy cheeks, red lips, white teeth, sparkling eyes. She's waspishly thin with elegant collarbones. She's so prone to fainting that little couches have been left in strategic locations in case a minute disturbance startles her into losing consciousness. This shouldn't be too hard to imagine. Numerous depictions of the so-called English rose survive to this day, and the image is still held up as the gold standard for Caucasian women. Thin, flushed, physically weak, and naturally submissive. At this point, it's so embedded in the Western psyche as the natural definition of feminine beauty that it doesn't occur to us to question it. Of course it's beautiful. Why wouldn't it be? Well, by the 19th century... Beauty standards in Britain had come a long way from the plucked hairlines of the Middle Ages and the heavy white serous of the Stuart period. Fashionable women wanted slimmer figures because physical fragility had become associated with intelligence, wealth, and refinement. They didn't need to trouble themselves with physical labor, the polar opposite of the physically fit Hannah Colwick from episode 7. Flushed cheeks, Bright eyes and red lips had always been popular, particularly among sex workers, because they suggested arousal, and women had been using cosmetics like belladonna, carmine, and Spanish leather for years to produce those effects when they didn't occur naturally. Bright eyes, flushed cheeks, and red lips were also signs of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, known at the time as consumption, hectic fever, or graveyard cough was an epidemic that affected all classes and genders across the board. Today, an estimated 1.9 billion people are still infected with it, and it causes about 2 million deaths every year. At the time, it was mainly associated with respectable women, although there are no few depictions of sex workers dying of it as well. As we discussed last week, Marie du Plessis lost her life to tuberculosis and the tragic sex workers of La Dame aux Camellias and La Traviata were directly inspired by her life. For a time, tuberculosis was thought to be triggered by mental exertion or even too much dancing. Dancing has nothing to do with it, but you can see why they might have thought so. In close quarters, with so many people breathing on one another, dancing would have been an ideal way to catch it. Bizarrely, attractive women were thought to be more susceptible to it because tuberculosis enhanced their beauty. It was noted to cause pale skin, silky hair, weight loss, and a feverish tinge to the face. You know, along with less attractive symptoms like weakness, coughing up blood, stomach upset, and organ failure, but a Victorian lady would never mention such things. It was treated rather ineffectively with bleeding, diet, red wine, opium, and laudanum. Although having an active rather than latent case of consumption was all but a death sentence, it didn't inspire the revulsion of other less attractive diseases until the end of the 19th century when its causes were better understood. In 1833, the London Medical and Surgical Journal described it in almost affectionate terms. Consumption, neither effacing the lines of personal beauty nor damaging the intellectual functions, tends to exalt the moral habits and develop the amiable qualities of the patient. Oh, well, that's okay then. Of course, tuberculosis didn't only affect women. The idea that it was caused by mental exertion, along with the not inconsiderable number of artists and intellectuals who lost their lives to it, also led to its association with poets. John Keats died of it at age 26. His friend Percy Shelley, also infected, wrote tributes to Keats that attempted to explain consumption not as a disease, but as a death by passion. Interestingly enough, a symptom that is unique to consumption is spes physica, a euphoric state that can result in intense bursts of creativity. Keats's prolific final year of life has been attributed to his consumption, and spes physica was viewed by some as necessary for artistic genius. As Alexandre fils wrote in 1852, It was the fashion to suffer from the lungs. Everybody was consumptive poets especially. It was good form to spit blood after any emotion that was at all sensational, and to die before reaching the age of 30. Because of its association with young women and poets, the disease itself came to represent beauty, romantic passion, and hypersexuality. As far as illnesses went, it was considered rather glamorous, and in a culture half in love with death, It inspired its fair share of tributes. There are numerous romantic depictions of young women wasting away in deathbeds at the height of their beauty. Women with consumption were regularly praised for the ethereal loveliness that came from being exceptionally thin and very nearly transparent. Now picture that ideal 19th century beauty again. That complexion is almost a pallor, and you can see her veins through her skin. Those lips, eyes, and cheeks are all indicative of a constant, low-grade fever. Her teeth are so white, they're almost as translucent as her skin. And her figure? She's emaciated due to the illness and the chronic diarrhea that comes with it. Rather less glamorous, isn't it? If she faints, it's more to do with the lack of oxygen in her blood than the tension of her corset. The sicker she gets, the more beautiful she becomes until she's gone. The beauty is all the more poignant because of its impermanence. This beauty can't last, and it's as deadly as it is contagious. Only a fool would wish for it. So, what's a healthy girl to do? Well, if you didn't have consumption but wanted the look, there were two things you could do wait. At its peak between 1780 and 1850, it is estimated to have caused a quarter of all deaths in Europe. Statistically, you would have a fair chance of getting it. Or two, you could fake it. Corsets could narrow the waist, of course, and in some cases, encourage a stooped posture. And necklines were designed to show off prominent collarbones. As for the rest, there were some other things that people could try. Arsenic complexion wafers were sold over-the-counter and recommended by doctors to improve the skin. Although arsenic was known to be toxic, it was used throughout the 19th century in everything from dye to medication. Eating small amounts of arsenic regularly was said to produce a clear, ghostly pale complexion. We're not just talking about clearing up acne here. Some of these portraits just about glow in the dark. Courtesan and 19th century beauty influencer Lola Montez reported that some women in Bohemia frequently drank the water from arsenic springs to whiten their skin. Lola herself recommended soap and water, but that's a story for another day. If you don't fancy ingesting poison, you could always apply it topically. Lead has been used as the primary ingredient for ceruse and other forms of foundation and powder for centuries. Of course, it was known to cause skin problems over time and, you know, lead poisoning. In the 19th century, it was still a common ingredient in paints and skin enamels in Europe and the United States. Once your foundation's done, it's time to highlight Sure, lead will make you white as hell, but it's a flat, chalky white, and to look like you're dying of tuberculosis, you really want to be see-through. One way to achieve this was with a layer of lavender powder. Not lavender-scented powder, we're talking about powder that is actually purple see, purple cancels out any warmth in the skin, so it doesn't make you look purple, but it does leave skin looking a little colder and slightly blue. Perhaps the best example of this effect that you can still see today is John Singer Sargent's portrait of Madame X. The model, Virginie Gautreau, was known to use lavender powder to create her dramatically pale complexion. She was said to be a master of drawing fake veins on with indigo, and she painted her ears with rouge to add to the illusion of translucence. Speaking of which, rouge was everywhere. Made from carmine or toxic bismuth or vermilion, it was applied to cheeks, lips, ears, and sometimes even nostrils to make them appear transparent. It came in liquid, cream, and powder forms, and Napoleon's Josephine is said to have spent a fortune on it. Finally, to achieve the ideal feverish, sparkling eyes, some women still used belladonna, which is very toxic and could actually leave you blind, while others tried putting lemon juice or other irritants in their eyes to make them water eyes, eyelashes, and eyebrows could also be defined. Eyeliner and mascara did exist in various forms, and eyebrows had been filled in or penciled on for centuries. In the Ugly Girl papers, a 19th century beauty column, S.D. Powers recommended a subtle application to enlarge the eyes as actors used on stage. This was one of her better tips. In the second half of today's show, we're going to take a break from tuberculosis and check out some skincare tips from Gilded Age New York. And I'm back! Very dramatic, I know. <laughs> so, what's with the music? Well, I thought you might like something to break up the halves so you know it's okay to laugh now. Uh, Tuberculosis is not the funniest subject, I gotta say. Now, uh, as you can imagine, I collect all kinds of different sources, but one of my favorites has to be the Ugly Girl Papers by S.D. Powers. The Ugly Girl Papers is a collection of beauty advice articles written for Harper's Bazaar in the 1870s, and it contains all kinds of advice, from dieting, like don't eat, to cures for toothaches, like opium and alcohol. It's funny, confusing, and at times, deeply concerning, and I'd love to read you the whole thing. This week, though, we're going to look at their tips for skincare. Now, I try to take pretty good care of my skin. You know, good cleanser, moisturizer, sunscreen, the whole nine yards. Reading this book, however, I was somewhat dismayed, if not entirely surprised, to learn that at 35, I am officially past it. Powers writes, The latest authorities in social science assert that woman's prime of youth is twenty-six, moving the barriers a good ten years ahead from the old standard of the novelist, whose heroines are always in the dew of sixteen. In the very first place, one may boldly say that beauty, or rather, fascination, is not a matter of youth, and no woman ought to sigh over her years till she feels the frost creeping into her heart. A high-bred beauty of thirty, if well-preserved, may dispute the poem. Women who look their thirties in the face should not lay down the scepter of life or fancy that its delights for them are over. They are young while they seem young. Well, shit. So how do I go about preserving what looks I have left before the frost creeps into my heart? What does she even mean by that? You know what? I don't want to know. But without further ado, and in no particular order, here are 10 tips for a perfect complexion from the Ugly Girl papers. Number 10 Contract Tuberculosis. Okay, look, I know, I know, I know. I said that we were done with TB for today. Well, Powers has something to add. While she doesn't actually recommend contracting TB, Powers does admit that people in the early stages of consumption or scrofula have the best skin. She writes, Consumption leaves the skin clear and brilliant, because the morbid matters which usually pass off through the skin are eating away the life in ulcers beneath. Now, she assures us that a similar effect can be achieved by purifying the blood, which leads us to... Number nine, eat less. A healthy diet and exercise are crucial to maintaining a clear complexion, so I can kind of see that. But then Powers tells a story of how she learned to live on very little in the name of achieving good skin. Now, before I read this, I just want to warn you guys that the next two points might be somewhat triggering to people uh, who've ever had issues with eating disorders, so if you need to, please feel free to skip ahead about a minute, okay? Okay. So Powers writes, When recovering from severe nervous prostration years ago, the writer found her appetite gone. The least morsel satisfied hunger, and more produced a repugnance she never tried to overcome. She resumed study six hours a day, and walked two miles every day from the suburbs to the center of the city and back again. Breakfast usually was a small saucer of strawberries and one graham cracker, and it was not infrequently dispensed with altogether. Lunch was half an orange, for the burden of eating the other half was not to be thought of. And at six o'clock, a handful of cherries formed a plentiful dinner. Once a week, she did crave something like beefsteak or soup and took it. Okay, now, look, I take my health seriously, but I'm not sure it's a good idea to live on nothing more than a handful of fruit and a single graham cracker every day. In case it wasn't clear that the author has a pretty severe eating disorder, she also suggests the next tip. Number eight. Purge with charcoal. One foolproof way to purify the blood is to use charcoal as a purgative. Not only can you clean your face with it, but your guts as well. She writes, To clear the complexion, take a teaspoon of charcoal well mixed in water or honey for three nights, then use a simple purgative to remove it from the system. It acts like calomel, with no bad effects, purifying the blood more effectively than anything else. But some simple aperient must not be omitted, or the charcoal will remain in the system, a mass of festering poison, with all the impurities it absorbs. That's right, you should purge with charcoal for three nights for this to be effective. If a mass of festering poison in your stomach doesn't sound like a great idea, she does point out that it's better than calomel or mercury chloride. God, I hope so. Alternatively, you could try number seven, use opium as a skin tonic. Powers writes, the opium found in the stalks of flowering lettuce refines the skin singularly and may be used clear instead of the soap which sells so high. Rub the milky juice collected from broken stems of coarse garden lettuce over the face at night, and wash with a solution of ammonia in the morning. Yep, yeah, that's right, the opium found in lettuce. What? Well, it turns out that she's not completely off her rocker. <laughs> the milky juice in lettuce stalks is a fluid called lacticarium, otherwise known as lettuce opium. It's a mild sedative and can produce feelings of euphoria. It can also be reduced to a thick substance that can be smoked like opium. It was a drug in the United States in the 19th century, which was used as a weaker alternative to the real thing. Learn something new every day. Number 6. Wrap your face in dandelion leaves for 6 weeks. A small dose of dandelion every other night will assist in refining the skin, but it will be at least six weeks' work to effect the desired change, and it will be a zealous girl who submits to the discomfort of the mask for that length of time. The result pays. The compress acts like a mild but imperceptible blister and leaves a new skin soft as an infant's. So, before there was microdermabrasion, you could wrap your face in stinging dandelion leaves for six weeks to raise a giant blister over your face that could be peeled off and voila. And all it took was a month and a half of intense discomfort and not showing anyone your face up close. No problem. Number five, beat the heat with cream of tartar and saltpeter. In the summer, the system should be kept cool by bathing at night and morning, and by tart drinks containing cream of tartar. Small quantities of nitre prescribed by the physician may be taken by very sanguine persons who suffer with heat. Nitre, or potassium nitrate, also known as saltpeter, is an ingredient in gunpowder. It's toxic in high doses, and it can cause headaches, upset stomach, and kidney failure. Maybe don't drink it. Number four, avoid cold. Be careful of all things to avoid a chill. This deadens the skin, paints blue circles around the eyes, and leaves the hands an uncertain color. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want my hands to be an uncertain color underneath my gloves. My God, what would people think? Number three, take arsenic pills. Bohemian countesses over 30 may go to arsenic springs, as they were wont to do, for the benefit of their complexions, but the home bathroom is more efficacious than even the minute doses of quicksilver with which the ladies of George I's court used to poison themselves, a primitive way of getting at the virtues of the blue pill. Now, that's not Viagra she's talking about, but arsenic, okay? As I mentioned in the first half, arsenic supplements were available and widely recommended for weight loss and clear skin. They were absolutely poison, and while they were causing extreme harm to the body, they would also make white skin pale, transparent, and slightly blue. The next best thing to dying of tuberculosis. Number two. Use tar as a face mask. She writes, Even hunters bear witness to its excellence in leaving the skin fair and innocent. Thus runs the formula, simple enough in all conscience, yet how few will have the boldness to try it. Mix one spoonful of the best tar in a pint of pure olive or almond oil by heating the two together in a tin cup set in boiling water. Stir till completely mixed and smooth, putting in more oil if the compound is too thick to run easily. Rub this on the face when going to bed, and lay patches of soft cloth on the cheeks and forehead to keep the tar from rubbing off. The bed linen must be protected by old sheets folded and thrown over the pillows. The odor, when mixed with oil, is not strong enough to be unpleasant. Some people fancy its suggestion of aromatic pine breath and the black, unpleasant mask washes off easily with warm water and soap. The skin comes out after several applications, soft, moist, and tinted like a baby's. Now, I'm not sure which hunters were using this tar face mask, but the idea of mountain men like sleeping with tar on their faces is hilarious to me. Uh, It does sound a little bit like something that happens to you before you're covered in feathers. And finally, number one, have a daughter? Guarantee her future beauty with malnutrition. Powers writes, some mothers are so anxious to secure this grace for their daughters that they are kept on the strictest diet from childhood. The most dazzling Parian could not be more beautiful than the cheek of a child I once saw who was kept on oatmeal porridge for this effect. At a boarding school, I remember, a fashionable mother gave strict injunctions that her daughter should touch nothing but brown bread and syrup. This was hard fare, but the carmine lips and magnolia brow of the young lady were the envy of her schoolmates, who, however, were not courageous enough to attempt such a regime for themselves. As nice as it would be to have carmine lips and a magnolia brow, eating nothing but bread and syrup is a terrible idea, and it's even worse if you're inflicting this diet on a child. In the 19th century, you might be able to get away with it as a wealthy eccentric, but these days, child services would and should be called. (sighs) Well... I hope that you have learned as much as I have today. (laughs) If you would like to read more from the Ugly Girl Papers, and you absolutely should, this book is incredible. Uh, The whole collection is available online at Amazon and on archive.org. It is a trip. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never been so grateful for my face wash good old non-toxic face wash, no tar or anything. And of course, I am so very grateful to our subscribers as well as our patrons on Patreon whose support makes this show possible. Thank you to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. If you would like to support the show, check us out on Patreon.com slash DirtySexyHistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos for this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale. My sources today include Caroline Day, Consumptive Chic: A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease. Alexandre Dumas, La Dame aux Camélias. Arnold Kleb, Tuberculosis: A Treatise by American Authors on its Etiology, Pathology, Frequency, Semiology, Diagnosis, Prognosis. Prevention, and Treatment, 1909. Allison Mayer, How Tuberculosis Symptoms Became Ideals of Beauty in the Nineteenth Century. Lola Montez, The Arts of Beauty, or Secrets of a Lady's Toilette, 1858. David M. Morins, At the Deathbed of Consumptive Art, Emerging Infectious Diseases, Volume 8, Number 11. November 2002. Emily Mullen, How Tuberculosis Shaped Victorian Fashion, Smithsonian Magazine. Sally Pointer, The Artifice of Beauty, A History and Practical Guide to Perfumes and Cosmetics. S. D. Powers, The Ugly Girl Papers, or Hints for the Toilet, 1874. Natalie Zarelli, The Poisonous Beauty Advice Columns of Victorian England. Atlas Obscura. See you next week.